Hi, I'm Ryan Miner. I'm the host of a Minor Detail podcast where it's all about Maryland. We have a no-holds-barred conversation featuring Maryland newsmakers and newsbreakers, journalists, reporters, politicos, politicians, policy wonks, prognosticators, political activists, organizers, community leaders, and so many more. Man, that's a lot of peas. Here on a Minor Detail podcast, we get to the bottom of every story. We talk about news and politics in an open and honest format. And we find the minor details because every detail matters. You can follow us on the web at a aminordetailpodcast.com and aminordetail.com for the latest Maryland news and politics. Thank you so much for listening. Enjoy the show. All right, good evening. We're back again. My name is Ryan Miner. You are listening to a Minor Detail Podcast. Find me on the web at a aminordetailpodcast.com. And tonight we're going to be again talking about the Legislative District 8 vacancy. Last week we had on uh, Carl Jackson, who is applying for the District 8 vacancy. And then on Sunday we had Henry Caligari, who is applying for the District 42A vacancy, both in Baltimore County. Both state delegates, one in District 8, Delegate Eric Brom, uh, Delegate Bromwell, and then Delegate Steve Lafferty uh, are going to join the Osheski administration in Baltimore County. And now by leaving the Maryland General Assembly, that creates a legislative vacancy. The Baltimore County Central Committee now are char- is charged with choosing two candidates for the different uh, for the different legislative vacancies. And tonight with me, I have another candidate. Her name is Nina McHugh, and she joins me from District 8. Hey, Nina, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing, Ryan? I'm great. Thanks for coming on. And we're going to talk tonight, as I said in the intro, about this legislative 8 uh, vacancy. And it's been the big news for the past couple of weeks now um, th- since Delegate Bromwell announced last week that he's going to be joining the Osheski administration in a role. I believe it's um, an opioid role. So, and yeah. he's going to be so he's going to be joining the administration. He's going to officially resign his position, and the Maryland House of Delegates sometime in early September, which then is going to kick in the process for the Baltimore County Democratic Central Committee to choose his successor and to to serve out the remainder of his legislative term, which would essentially be three years. And Nina, you announced last week that you are applying for that legislative vacancy. So I appreciate you coming on to talk about that. And while the process hasn't started yet, you haven't met yet with the central committee as a whole. We're going to talk tonight a little bit about district eight, about some of your potential legislative priorities and what you would hope to accomplish in office. But first, Nina, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your career and what you've been up to for the past couple of years? Sure, absolutely. Um, So this is really exciting. Thank you, Ryan, (laughs) for having me. Um, But I'm Nina, and well, Nina McHugh, and I was elected to the Democratic Central Committee in June. Um, this past June. And um, before that, I 
so we'll start from the beginning. I graduated from Towson with a bachelor's degree in science, and I went straight into Johns Hopkins Baby. I already had a position available because I had been working there before I had graduated, and I was a <clears throat> I left there as a senior rehabilitation therapist. And what that means is I was working with um, children and teens and their families who were experiencing difficulties, mental difficulties or behavioral difficulties. And when I first started at Bayview, um, my first week there, there was a dead body in a tree and a dead body on the sidewalk. Um, (laughs) Yes. And and these are things that are actually happening. And it was, it happened right across from a school. Um, And before my second year, um, our kids came in from one of the developments um, that is now being taken over by Johns Hopkins. Um, but these kids came in and there was a drive-by shooting and they had to learn how to duck these bullets. And you put your everything into these families. No one goes into um, a department like this or a field like this if they don't have their whole heart in it. Um, and we were putting our everything into it. And as as years went by, I was working with these families and nothing was coming out of it. And it's a systematic thing. So the only thing I could do was leave and find out what was going on behind the scenes. Um, because at the end of the day, policy dictates everything. And when the resources are working against the community, something needs to happen. Something needs to change. Um, but I grew up as a foster kid as well, and um, I was eventually adopted when I was almost 10, but there are certainly many holes in the, in the foster care system, and I was determined not to let my past dictate my future, and I didn't want everything to happen for nothing, so I was determined to see what's going on and fix it if I could, because I had survived it. It was my responsibility to do something about it. Um, So when I eventually left Bayview, um, I left with no plan, no plan whatsoever. Um, And I worked two years off my life savings doing, getting involved in my own community, um, finding ways on what's going on, on on kind of any like education platform or community platform. And I did. I had no idea where this route was going to take me, um, but I got involved with the PTA. I got involved in different focus groups and and hunger groups throughout Baltimore County. Um, And then that led me into marketing, which is um, I'm also a contractor, and marketing was something I didn't know that I was good at, but it turns out, hey, I I was pretty good at it. Um, And with marketing, I would work with small businesses, And people are very good at what they do and they have an idea and they do it, but there's other parts that they don't know about. So I would go in and I would help them fix those holes, get them connected to other businesses, get them connected to community, um, get them connected to other outlets. And then once they were good, I would go off to my next client. Um, and for a while, I had um, a lineup list, people waiting 
for me mm-hmm. to come and, and help them out. Um, and then it turned into politics and campaigning and it's so exciting. And I love this world because there is so much going on and this is where it's at. This is where policies are being made. This is where we're fighting for the rights of our constituents, where we're fighting to get things done. And, and we see that in Annapolis. Yeah. Um, and that's, well, that's quite a story, and you you certainly have a diverse background, and I that will I would imagine certainly contribute to uh, a central committee who's ultimately going to choose the next state delegate. That's going to factor in. Nina, let's talk about you. You mentioned your segue into politics. What was the? Mm-hmm. I guess. I don't want to call it the the breaking point, but what was the motivation? What was the impetus behind getting into politics? You you mentioned a little bit about your narrative, and that seems like it could be a, a, a natural linear progression in in that way to to help people and to serve your community. But for you, what was that moment like when you first decided, okay. "Hey, I think this is where I want to. This is where I want to take my life to." Yes. So it it. For me, this does feel like the natural linear pr- progression. This does feel like the natural most the most natural step going forward. Um, so I was working um, with Maryland Hunger Solutions and No Child Hungry in St. Vincent de Paul, and we were. And this is all volunteer work that I was doing with them. I wrote the proposal for Maryland Hunger Solutions um, for how they could get more budgeting, um, and. With that, I then was appointed to Vicki Allman's Hunger Task Force. Um, mm-hmm. And before I got to the task force for Vicki Allman, I had started the Parkville Network with Lori Taylor Mitchell. Um, and the network is, is it's the Student Support Network now, and it has eight schools under it. It started off the Lock Raven Network. The second school is Parkville Network. Um, and I sat down with Lori at a diner, and she told me how she started the Lock Raven Network. Parkville Network was right next to me. I mean, Parkville High School was right next to me, and this was in December. Um, she started the Lock Raven Network with a um, adopt a family with a with an adopt a family program. So she mm-hmm. said, "You could start this in Parkville because Parkville has the highest number of homeless students." in the county. Um, and I called, couldn't get anybody on the phone. So I just showed up at the school and I finally got in touch with the avid teacher who called the social worker right in front of me. This was December 2nd. The next day we were working on this, this prototype project for Parkville high school. Um, and you know, we, this, the, the adoptive family was so great. It, It was very successful that we just continued into different directions and different paths in the high school. And the next step was the AVID program, which um, when we needed donations, I took it upon myself to ask for donations from the politicians in our, in our area. And Eric Bromwell was the first person to respond and he donated to the AVID program. And after that, um, it, it just, 
we, there was so much need in the school, and we had so many stuff going on. Uh, Kathy Quagmire got involved, and Kathy Bevan, she was a huge part of, of all this. And now there's eight schools, and and I got the attention from other politicians, and I was at an event with um, one of Vicki Allman's coming out event for her county exec. She was announcing that she was running for county exec, and I think that's when I met some of, some of the other people, and they had actually knew my name and so it kind of went into there and uh you know it it just became an exciting journey um and and i think it was a natural progression so and you you have county experience and you've you've worked with in the baltimore county infrastructure or the political infrastructure and then you mm-hmm. said you were just recently elected to the Baltimore County Central Committee but you've also had some experience working in Annapolis um for mm-hmm. a, a state delegate and I'm sure that experience opened your eyes or at least gave you some valuable insight into how the legislative process works and carrying that experience over into if you are ultimately selected by the the Baltimore County Democratic Central Committee, you would have a, a an understanding of what the day-to-day operations look like as a state delegate, especially during session, and then how you would mm-hmm. uh, reach out and work with constituents. Talk a little bit about that experience and what that and what you've learned from um, from that opportunity. Um, so th- you're completely correct. I did do work in in Annapolis actually the past couple of years, and. I think learning about bills that were just being smashed right in the beginning, important bills, um, it's heartbreaking. And you want to find out why. And as someone who has been through through the system, someone who has struggled, um, you you get passionate about it. And and you kind of want to see what's going on and and what's going on – behind the scenes and kind of get to the bottom of it and what it might be the wording of the bill. It could be other things that, you know, I have no idea about. Um, But there are a lot of things that go in through Annapolis, especially um, the house that are things that could potentially better lives in in the community um, and, and the quality of life. So, well, a- absolutely, and, yeah. and, it, and you know, having spent time in Annapolis, understanding the legislative process, how bills are are created when it starts out in session, and probably experiencing the grueling uh, uh, times spent during those uh, hearings, it's a lot of work. It, it's certainly a lot of work, especially when you're when you're not only preparing legislation and working with the state delegate. Um, but also still serving the constituents, feeling their concerns. And anybody who's right. ever worked in a constituent services role, it's it takes a lot of patience, plenty of hours, and but it can be very rewarding because, in effect, you are serving the constituents directly, hearing their needs, and bringing pieces of legislation uh, or their ideas directly to the chamber, and then 
manifesting that into an actual bill process. So let me ask you about that. When you were in Annapolis and mm-hmm. you were you were working for the general still working for the General Assembly, um, was there any specific pieces of legislation that you personally championed or worked with constituents to help them bring to the chamber so that you could get this legislation passed? Um, So actually there was one bill in particular that I felt that I had a connection with. Um, So a couple years ago, there was a bill that was put through and it gives victims um, of child molestation or who have been victims of sexual assault as a child, it gives victims 20 years to file a civil suit after reaching adulthood. Um, Now, this bill had been smashed um, each year up until 2015. Um, And what this bill does, um, so Maryland cannot be a sanctuary state anymore for sexual predators and pedophiles or the institutions that harbor them. That's Um, right. Yes. And we're talking about the Catholic priests. This is what this bill targets. It's, it's Catholic priests. And what we've been seeing is that institutions were harboring these, these sexual predators and pedophiles for a very long time. Finally, in 2015, this bill was passed. But um, <laughs> here's the thing. The, the Catholic priests, they got around the bill. So everyone who tried to file a civil suit um, in the past, before this bill was passed, um, after it had passed, everyone who tried to file a civil suit within two years, it's called a two-year look-back window. So if you tried <laughs> to file, you were not able. So this anybody who tried to get their story out there and see justice mm-hmm. didn't happen. Um, it's a loophole, and this was a bill that we tried to get through this year, and it didn't. Um, and then there was another bill. Um, there, I, I, there are a couple of bills, but you got to you get to hear the constituents. They're calling, they're emailing, they're coming to you, and they're talking about how this affects their personal life. And when it becomes personal, you get to really identify with their stories and and see from the see what they're going through and kind of feel their pain and how much this really affects them personally um absolutely yeah i mean and that's as you know i see a state delegate not only as a legislator but is an advocate a champion um they play many roles wear many hats and by being an advocate for their constituents or for a particular issue, whether it be as an issue as important and serious as sexual assault or a statute of limitations bill or criminal justice, the environment, health care, pick an issue, you name it. State delegates and their staff are heavily involved in that process mm-hmm. day to day, and it becomes very personal. I've seen that up close and personal with many of the, the delegates and many of their staff members covering Annapolis covering session. And I see how deeply entrenched and personal that they take this, the, the, the concerns of their constituents 
and it's it, it can be very emotional, and it can certainly be mm-hmm. a um, an exhilarating ride when you're when you put something onto the floor and when you speak and when you bring that legislation before the entire body and you debate it, discuss it, and then if it's there it could be a it's, a it's a great thing when it's passed or sometimes it doesn't pass and uh, you start from square one. So, you know, understanding how this system works, I'm interested to hear your perspective about the the layout of the land of Annapolis. What's your take on the culture? <laughs> you know, you have a you have a good insider's view, and I think that <laughs> you being down there understand the culture of Annapolis. And maybe you'll go into this delegate seat, right? If they, you know, you're, you're ultimately chosen. Yeah. There's some things that you you want to change about it. So, you know, I'm interested. What's your perspective yeah. on the culture of Annapolis? So, I mean, there is definitely a culture of Annapolis. There's definitely the Annapolis way. I don't know if you've ever heard that term. Oh, sure, um, yeah. But there is definitely, yeah, there's definitely this Annapolis way. Um, but uh, for me. <laughs> as a state delegate, if I were to get in this position, um, I'm not sure I would want to get fully engrossed in the culture. I would want to stay in the culture just enough so that I am fulfilling the, my role as an advocate for my community um, so that I can have working relationships with my colleagues um, that it can be tough. <laughs> Absolutely. Sure. Um, but I think not getting so involved in the personal relationships and keeping the focus on constituents. Um, <sighs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I hear the, <laughs> I hear the consternation and I, I, I can hear the, it's almost, um, I'm hearing an, an ambiguous um, reflection of the system. I mean, look, you know what Peter Peter Francho is an example. He talks about the Annapolis machine, right? And yeah, it, nobody can deny if you've been down there for some time that something like that does not exist because I've <laughs> it seen does it in exist. action. Yeah, I mean you've seen it's, it. You it know how it works. Exist. Yes, I and, know how it works. And so, as as you come into the system, and as you if you are selected, and you then journey into your own pathway. People mm-hmm. want to know how will you how will you operate? Will you be independent? Will you be an? Uh, are you going to, you know, is it another go along to get along? Because I always hear people talk about that throughout these processes, or people who run for office, is that will you stake out your own independent position and look at every piece of legislation and not be swayed by you know a monolithic power structure, or will you? You know, are you going to go your own way and decide for yourself what is best and what is best for your constituents? Uh, that's a really good question, Ryan. And the thing is, is I went through a lot as a child, and there are a lot of kids who were just like me who didn't even get a chance. Um, in fact, I don't know someone who is anywhere near where I'm at right now who went through the system like I did. Um, I didn't go through all of this just to get to Annapolis, just to be buddy-buddy and go along with the status quo. I came here to fight, fight for the kids that have no voice, fight for 
the the kids where this is happening more and more and that's unacceptable and it's unacceptable because of where we've gotten in our politics it's not okay i don't plan to be a lifetime politician um, my plan is to do maybe one or two terms and then move forward because there's more stuff i i need to do it's not i have legislation i want to push through and I don't care <laughs> who gets in my way. I'm, I'm going for it. That's and that's a refer. I'm sure that many can. St- if if folks from the eighth eighth uh, district are listening, uh, that would be refreshing. That you are willing to strike out your uh, or at least stake out your own positions and be an advocate. And, you know, we see people who stay in Annapolis for years and sometimes, it, you know, I, I'm sort of indifferent of people who make a career out of politics. I don't necessarily see it as a bad thing if you can accomplish uh, good right. over the years. But there certainly is an argument to be made um, that people who linger within the system become the system. They become part of right. the entrenched politics that I think many of us have especially following it and observing it have come to dislike. And I think it's fair to say that I, I see your district district eight in Baltimore County. I don't see it as a hardcore progressive district. I see it more of as a modern leading uh, district. It is a moderate district. So, and, and that sort of is a great segue into our next topic. I want to talk a little bit about some of the policies that you would like to champion. And we've talked about that in the beginning of the interview, but where do you see yourself on the political spectrum? Would you consider yourself a moderate or a, a progressive, or how, how would you classify yourself on the political sphere? Um, that is a hard question because I think it depends what legislation is coming up in front of me. Um, I live in a moderate district, so I have to think about people from both sides and even our independents. Um, This isn't just about um, Republican or Democrat. When you're in the legislature, you have to work together. And that does does not mean just working on one side. Um, So to answer your question, it depends what's coming up in front of me and what I think would be best for the community and my constituents. Hmm. Okay, fair fair enough. And tell me a little bit about your district. Tell me what kind of issues are prevailing right now. What are the concerns of economically, socially, even maybe racially? That's a, obviously a big topic. Mm-hmm. And tell me a little bit about what you hear on the street. And you'll be talking to a lot of people every single day. You'll probably hear something different. And what are those issues that are really important? to the 8th Legislative District? Okay, so let me just start out with this. Um, so our estimated income for District 8 is about $62,000 um, with an estimated margin of error of 1500 And the reason why that sounds so high for District 8 is because of the White Marsh Perry Hall area that area is being developed heavily right now. Um, but we have other parts that aren't in that, that bracket. Um, we have about 2,000 students in Baltimore County um, in the BCPS for 
Baltimore County that are homeless. Um, so high School, who has the highest poverty rate in Baltimore County, is in District 8. So what we're seeing is a lot of our families, um, if you make about $40,000, you don't qualify for benefits. Right. Um, and we're seeing a lot of families who have to choose whether they need medication, whether they need gas so they can get to work, or put food on the table at the end of the month. And these are all difficult things. Um, and we're being, our district is having a tough time meeting their basic needs. Um, and this is across all neighborhoods um, throughout District 8. It's, and you'll see it sometimes heavier in other pockets. Um, but we're also... Um, like getting basic needs met, uh, clothing. There are kids that are going to school in dirty clothes. We don't have proper social workers in the area. Um, basic and, pocketbook and issues I, that, yeah. that are basic important. Basic pocketbook issues. Yeah, basic pocketbook issues that are really important to every legislative district. But, you know, you mentioned that the, the, the median wage or the median of what people earn in the district. You know, another big topic that comes up um, and as we, we shift into policy, and, and I appreciate you um, talking about what's important to your constituents, but um, another big topic that's on the minds of everybody is transportation. And here in Montgomery County, where yes. I live, we're, we're discussing what it is that we need to do to fix Interstate 270, which has a massive traffic crisis. Uh, it, it bottlenecks, of course, next to the GW Bridge. Uh, at 495, mm-hmm. the, the Capitol Beltway is a big, a huge problem. It, it impedes the flow of traffic every single day, even on the weekends. And, of mm-hmm. course, today there was a big article where the governor talked about uh, some some new bridge ideas for uh, the, mm-hmm. the Chesapeake Bay Bridge. So tell me, what are your, what are your philosophy on transportation? And as a state delegate, what would you champion within your district? Um, either uh, in, increased rail, maybe uh, what kind of transportation priorities or infrastructure upgrades do you see as most important? Well, we, so for Baltimore County, especially um, at the county level, potholes, road structures are one of the number one concerns and complaints that um, our county people, our council people get. Um, infrastructure is, if it's, it's definitely holding us back with quality of life. It's ruining cars and, and whatnot. But one of, that is one of the, legis- I have a piece of legislation that I would really like to push through um, and it deals with discrimination within car insurance. Um, so did you, I don't know if you know this, but Maryland doesn't have a good public trans- transportation. Our, trans- our public transportation isn't what it should be. So when you get car insurance, it's not based on your car history. It's actually based on your FICO score. And this <laughs> is a way of discrimination and it's it's for and this is a bigger concern for people senior citizens because they don't have a job it's for young adults people of color 
um, this is not okay. And I'm not sure if everyone knows what a FICO score is, but your FICO score is the amount available on a credit card versus the amount of, of money used. Right. Um, and not having good public transportation, you know, if you're right down the street and you need to go to work, sometimes people have to wait an hour to get on the bus. Um, and uh, trying to haul groceries, that's uh, these simple things. If you have three kids and you have to get on the bus, you're waiting out there in the hot. Sometimes you're waiting way too long and it becomes a public safety issue. It becomes, I don't know. Uh, we can do better. We need to do better. We can do better. We need better public transportation. We need more buses. We need more bus routes. I would like to see um, the metro. I would like to see more metro routes, um, especially for young people getting into their first jobs. Right. Um, so, yeah. Um, one major thorough or full beltway interstate highway that goes through much of Baltimore County is mm-hmm. Interstate 95. And mm-hmm. if anybody has traveled on Interstate 95, we know that it can be certainly a risky road to travel on. Mm-hmm. And there is much needed upgrades, um, especially going through the outer loop. And then you go through the Baltimore Tunnel. And mm-hmm. it's it, actually the interstate, uh, 695 was named. It's one of the 50, 15, excuse me riskiest roads in America. And this was named really? by a study by, yeah, it was, it's, it's, that was listed as a study um, recently by Allstate. And so oh. I know that MDOT is certainly looking at a series of projects, but no definitive timeline on how to mm-hmm. upgrade that. Of course, they're also looking at inter- how to upgrade interstate 295, the Baltimore Washington Parkway. So I, I don't oh. know. What major – do you know which major transit runs through District 8? What, what are your constituents? I what do don't. you have access – okay. So this is something that I don't actually have all the knowledge for. Um, I would need to get more information. Um, mm-hmm. So I can't answer this question um, in full right now. Uh, it's – yeah. No. Fair, I, I just fair need enough. more information. Nope. Fair enough. Um, today in uh, Nina, today in the Washington Post, there was an article mm-hmm. um, about the, the the name of the article is Governor Hogan says that there's only one option that he'll accept to relieve the Bay Bridge backups. And anybody who knows who has traveled across the Bay Bridge on a Saturday during any summer knows that there's extensive backups, but of course, with an increase in any sort of transit overhaul, it, it affects mm-hmm. a variety of outcomes, whether it be planning, um, there's an environmental impact. But today, um, it was reported that Maryland transportation officials were studying how to best reduce the traffic backups at the Chesapeake Bay Bridge. And the governor said mm-hmm. that the, by building a third span is the option that he would only approve. So do you... Do you have a position on what um, what we might be able to do to mitigate that traffic flow or how to work with the varying counties? Or do you have an idea or philosophy of where we might need to add 
an additional bridge center or what we can do to, I guess, look at alternative methods to get more cars flowing um, across the Bay Bridge or perhaps get less cars and then opt out instead for a transit option? I Yeah, so obviously there is definitely an issue. Um, but I, like I said, I, I would need to know more facts where that money would be coming from for the bridge. Um, maybe map it out how I, I don't know. I would need more in front, um, but I would definitely like to be a part of the discussion um, of what we could do in the future and how we can kind of tackle this issue. Right. Um, there's a synergy between Baltimore County and of course your district has a, a close proximity to Baltimore city. And we're always mm-hmm. talking about Baltimore city uh, and the conundrum of crime and poverty and racial justice, criminal justice reform. And I think that Baltimore County and Baltimore city, they work in tandem together with one another. And right. it's just such a big portion of our city. I find it to be the Baltimore city. Look, it's one of our economic hubs of Maryland. It's the driver of mm-hmm. economic activity throughout the state of Maryland. How do you think we can work together? How can Baltimore County, your district, and the city work with officials? What is it? There's no magic solution to fixing Baltimore City, but where's the synergy? What's that process? How would you approach uh, the city-county dichotomy? Um, that's, a, that's a good question as well. And, you know, I love Baltimore City. I love going there with my family. Um, and I'm proud to say that I'm from Baltimore. Um, so I think, so citizens on patrol is something that we see a lot throughout Baltimore County. And with the citizens on patrol, I've gone to the 911 call centers in, in Towson and uh, we've done tours. And what I'm hearing is that the dispatch between the County and the city is a little bit differently. Um, and when I talk, I've, I've actually, I talked to a city cop this past weekend, and he said that calls go through um, a, a couple of different ways before it actually gets to the cops themselves. And also, I know that Bob, he said that Baltimore City, they are on a, a shortage of police. Um, so I think that we need to encourage young folks to want to get into these type of positions when they're older and of age, but also we need to celebrate the great things that are happening within the city and in the county. Um, And something that I am working on with um, Shirley Supic, who is really big um, in advocacy work between communities um, and districts across districts in the county, um, she just uh, met with uh, Comptroller Peter Franchot. And, um, oh, no, that's a separate thing. But we together are going to host a STEAM fair, uh, which eventually we would like to cross over into the city. And this would be an international fair uh, where we bring 
mainly Maryland, but other states and, and over the country to come and participate in our science and art fair. That would have families renting hotels in the city and in the county that would have them increase their tourism. Um, and it would celebrate successes of young people in our community. Um, and we have amazing things like the Festival of Lights, and we have the African American Festival in the city, and the Ukrainian Festival in the city. And um, there is this amazing Halloween festival at Patterson Park. So we, I don't think there's any one worded or any like one, I don't, there's no magical way to fix this. I also feel strongly that we need to increase community. We need to build families up and that we need to break the cycle. We need to make jobs where people aren't having to work three or four jobs. We need to make jobs more than just minimum wage so families can actually go home and they can parent their kids. Um, if we are able to break the cycle, we can, I believe in my heart, bring families together. But people are acting out, I believe, because they're desperate. They have no other choice. They're, they have no other path. Paths are being taken from before they're even given to them. It's not fair. And then, you know, you you look at other things that are going on within the city schools. I've been inside the city schools, and it's very different than going into county schools. Um, when I was at Hopkins, I went to city schools every day, along with county schools. But I would hear teachers yelling at their students. And social workers and counselors just walking the other way. Um, I saw a young child gyrating another child. Um, it's, it's a community effort. We need to come together. Right. Um, and I'm glad you brought up education. Obviously, one of the biggest portions of our state budget. That is the typical topic of every legislative session is education funding in this past session we came out with the Kerwin commission's recommendations on yes. how we can better fund our schools and and I talked in other interviews about the 3.8 billion dollar price tag that Kerwin has has came up with and it's obvious now it it's going to take implementation over several years and that's part mm -hmm. of uh that's part of the process and we and I've read the report, and I've read the recommendation. What are your thoughts on Kerwin's recommendations in education funding? Is that price tag something that is concerning to you, or is there a way that we can come up with that money needed? Uh, and it looks like the General Assembly is going to move forward with that, even though the General Assembly is, is not on the same plane as the governor. What are your thoughts? Mm -hmm. So I'm – I'm fully supporting, supportive of funding the Kerwin Commission and the recommendations. Uh, for me, education is a right. It's not a privilege. We need to stop acting like it's a privilege. It is a right. Every child has the right at a proper education. Um, and what this resolution that the Kerwin Commission is recommending 
it would allow for education to become a right again. Um, you know, so Maryland every year spends about 20, 15 to $20 million on, on organizations and nonprofits, but there should be a regular audit for all money that is given out. And this is a bond bill. This is about 15 to $20 million. And there has mm-hmm. to be oversight um, about how the, the money is used. Um, and I think if we look, because we have programs that we're funding, but what's actually going on there? Um, I think we need to actually take a look at what we're funding, how we're funding it, because education needs to come first. This is our future. This is the foundation of tomorrow. Um, Kids need drinking water. You know, there's five schools in Baltimore County that don't have air conditioning. Um, Delaney High School is really falling through. I mean, these are – how can you learn if you are – right? Certainly a topic that came before state lawmakers and the uh, the Board of Public Works is the air conditioning issue. And having lived in Baltimore County, you know front and center that schools like Delaney High School, not having air conditioning and ch- school children going to school in sweltering heat is unacceptable. And I know sometimes I've heard my parents or grandparents, oh, well, we didn't have that. Well, I understand that, but it's different these days. We, we, we cannot allow that to happen in our school system. So, you know, that's, that's one of the areas where you would be working with your local lawmakers or, or rather Baltimore mm-hmm. County council, uh, the, uh, even in, with, you know, city legislators in, in some respect. Mm-hmm. And then of course, uh, and and local the the local municipalities, but education is the single biggest issue in any state budget. It's the single biggest issue that's talked about. I mean, it's mandated spending. And of course, during the Mako conference two weeks ago, the governor made a speech and said that he would not be willing to raise taxes to pay for the the price tag of Kerwin. And we don't know what's going to happen yet. And the General Assembly is now talking about different ways to raise the the revenue needed to meet the recommendations, to meet the price tag. And there's a couple of different ways that they're looking to do that. And uh, one mm-hmm. of the unique ways and what they explored was marijuana legalization, whether we tax it or how that process comes about. Currently, there's a commission studying the legalization and what legalization really is all about is is generating the revenue from the that process and bringing it back to 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 the state you know how paying for new initiatives would that be something nina that you would support are you in favor of legalizing recreational marijuana or it, how, how would you approach that all right um i so for me um my family was destroyed by drugs, and I think right now I am very biased about marijuana use. Um, although they're talking to my friends, you know, marijuana drug. Um, my mind is it's slowly changing, um, but 
for that, because I'm aware of biases, um, I, I need to know what marijuana, the types of marijuana, the actual effects that they create, and what are the consequences of marijuana use, and is, there, is it actually a gateway drug? That it, I don't think it is, but um, I need to be aware of my own background before, um, but <laughs> I do know that in other places, um, it is legal, like in D.C., and I would like to see um, the reports and the statistics and the data and how it actually helped, um, if there's any correlation between the funds generated from that and, and schools. But um, I would also like to relook at casinos and how the funds were being utilized that were the schools. Well, um, we were told we that casinos were – I mean, look – you're right. It's a it's a valid, important, poignant point that casinos, we were sold that casinos were supposed to fund our schools. You know, essentially it would go into what some sort of lockbox and it would be used to fund our schools. Now we're asking three point eight billion dollars. So my question to Maryland lawmakers is what the hell happened to the money? What happened to it? Yeah. Where it where yeah. did it go, and why is it that every time that and and Kerwin is an excellent commission. I I respect yeah, the work that absolutely. they did. It was tremendous. It took a tremendous amount of brain power to come up with these recommendations. They studied school systems all across the country and they mapped it yeah. out almost perfectly. But why is it that every time we come up with a new education solution that it's money being thrown at a, at a – and I don't want to call it a problem, but why is mm-hmm. – we need to be able to measure it. In order to understand something, we right. have to first be able to measure the results. So I, I just have to – I have to question our state lawmakers and say, well, what happened to the casino money? Where is it? And exactly. nobody seems to be able to come up with a, a good answer, and it's, it's alarming to me. Really, it's truly alarming. It's extremely alarming, and I remember when I – I'm also uh, the Stanley um, School Partnership Chair for the Baltimore County Council PCA, and I, when I first got onto that council, that was one of the questions I brought up because that was something that I was passionately irritated with. We couldn't get answers, and this – we put casinos in – it was going to fund the needs that education was not able to get funding for. And that was one of the big reasons. And, and that's, Hey, I, I don't know. Yeah. Fair, fair enough. And so moving on to uh, the possibility of being selected by the central committee, they might ask yeah. you, Nina, once you are selected, um, what what committees might you want to serve on? But my, my guess is that you might just be assigned to a committee. But even so, what committees yeah. in the House that you would be interested in serving on and where you think you might be able to best use your personal background to influence? Um, the Ways and Means Committee, um, 100%. Um, is the committee that I would prefer to be on. Um, 
I I was lost in the education system. We have the Kerwin Commission coming up. They have a lot of great ideas, and this could really change the face of education, not only for our students, but for our teachers. Um, and there's, there's some legislation I would like to push through to help <laughs> through the Ways and um, Means Committee. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's one. Is there other um, – what other interests might you have uh, to, to serve on? So I wouldn't mind being on the Transportation Committee either. Um, I think, you know – it's not something that I'm an expert in, but I know it's a huge issue and I'm willing to learn and sit down and hear what's actually happening um, because this is something that is going on and um, I would like to be more involved. Um, I mean, yeah. Okay. So thinking back to, the last session and how it might reflect on a the new session coming up in 2020. Um, mm -hmm. What do you think were some of the biggest key takeaways from last session in terms of legislation? What were the what do you classify as some of the most important pieces of legislation that were passed by the General Assembly and then signed into law by the governor? Um, the fight for 15 was a huge one. And I was really that? happy to see that. Oh, my gosh. Yes, I did. Um, I even went to rallies to fight for 15. Um, and this is a huge thing. As a single mom, I don't want to be working three jobs paying somebody else to raise my child. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing that more and more. It's important that we're also investing in our families. <laughs> The fight for 15 was a huge – I was I was very happy about that. Um, and, another, yeah. another huge piece of legislation that came out of session was the Clean Energy Jobs Act. Was that yeah. something that was on your radar? What do you think about that piece of legislation? So I am all about the Clean Energy Jobs Act. Um, we need to save our planet. I think if we can get more green jobs, this is a huge thing that's being talked about right now. Um, and our young people, they're very concerned. And I think there's simple things that we can do um, and create jobs as a way to create jobs for the bettering of our planet. Yeah, and it's certainly something that they're looking to go to fully renewable by, I, be, I believe, 2040. It was It's just a monumental piece of legislation. Um, mm -hmm. There was some big issues that came out of judiciary as well. Uh, of course, I wonder how or what might be addressed with respect to to guns. That was a big issue during this past session, especially after the Annapolis Capitol shooting Several Moms Demand Action groups came down. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, and maybe that's something you'd like to share, um, especially combating mm -hmm. gun violence in Maryland. Okay. So, I, um, I mean, guns, it's a huge issue. Uh, my son goes to summer camp some weeks during the summer, and there was a child there talking about 
wanting to shoot kids, and he had a bullet around his neck. Uh, I kept my son from camp that week because there is this instilled fear, and I think it goes back to we don't have the mental health that we need. We need more mental health services. We need parents in the home. Um, But also, Walmart should not be selling guns. As long as there's guns on the street, there's always going to be this fear of your son, your daughter, your mother, your father, husband, wife, grandmother, someone close to your friends, that their life could be taken away. And that's something that we that we could have avoided. Um, now, I don't believe in taking guns away from everyone. I believe in, in that if you, so, okay, hold on. Let me kind of think this through. Um, I do believe that we have responsible gun owners but we need to tighten sure. the policies on that. We shouldn't, Walmart should not have guns. It's easy for someone to roll up in there and take whatever they want and come out. We've seen it. We, we're seeing it happening all the time where people are just looting, rioting, and leaving stores. That doesn't sit well with me. I think that if we tighten the policies and what types of guns can be used um, for responsible gun holders, I, I like that, now I, but yeah. So, Nina, in the final two minutes, um, let's let's make the pitch to the central committee. Yeah. When you walk in and you're sitting before some of your colleagues, and you decide um, to 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 tell them exactly what it is that is the biggest selling point. So, in the last two minutes. Talk to me about that. What are you, how, how are you going to make the pitch, and what will you say that you want to leave them with as to why you are the best choice, the best candidate to fill uh, Delegate Bromwell's impending legislative vacancy? Okay. Um, so we need gender balance in the House of Delegates. We have not had a woman in the House of Delegates for a very long time. And right now, there's, we're still fighting for women's rights. Um, and I'm very passionate about that. But also, as a foster child, we have no one fighting for, for us. There's no one really fighting for us. Um, you know, Maryland doesn't have a Bill of Rights for foster children in Maryland. It's not a thing. I want to put this through. Um, I'm passionate. I've been a community activist for so long. I quit my job to see what's actually happening because I care. I like cohesiveness amongst our community members. Um, And this is what it's about. I'm a single mother. Um, Our district alone, we have 66,000 women and we have 56,000 men. I want to be yeah. there as, yeah. Um, well, no, I'm sorry. Keep going. Oh, okay. 
I, I care about what's going on. I know what it's like being inside Annapolis. Um, I'm not going to be swayed by one way or another. And I hope that you will vote based on your conscience and your own priorities and not based on endorsements. Um, I am here because I want to be here and I'm here for you. I'm here for your kids, your mother. I want to fight the issues that you're fighting for. Well, that certainly sums it up. And as the process moves forward, I want you to keep me in the loop of what happens. I would like to, I want to keep following this story. I think that it's uh, a fascinating time. There's a vacancy and to see this process move um, and, and all the pieces sort of fall neatly into place. And that's why we have these central committees to make these important decisions. So Nina, I really appreciate you coming on tonight and sharing about yourself, about some of your policy goals and what you'd like to accomplish as a state delegate. And I wish you all the best moving forward. And as I said, please, uh, please stay in touch and uh, let me know how things go. Thank you so much, Ryan. Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely will. All right. Well, you have a great week and thanks again for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you. Right. Uh-huh. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, folks, that was Nina McHugh. She is running for the District 8 legislative vacancy. Not running, perhaps, but instead she is submitting her name to the Baltimore County Democratic Central Committee. They're going to soon meet after Delegate Bromwell announces his resignation when he officially resigns. That's when the process kicks in. The Central Committee will then go into the mode of selecting their candidates, interviewing anybody who decides to sign up. And, of course, we'll find out what the ultimate choice will be uh, probably by the end of next month. So with that, we'll go ahead and wrap it up. My name is Ryan Miner. I'm the host of a Minor Detail podcast. Thanks all so much for listening. You can find me on the web at aminordetail.com. I write about Maryland politics and news and try to get some good scoops out there. And then, of course, follow me on the web at aminordetailpodcast.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great rest of your week. You can subscribe to a Minor Detail podcast on iTunes, CastBox, Overcast, or any application where you listen to podcasts. Like a Minor Detail podcast on Facebook, and follow the conversation on Twitter at Podcast. If you or someone you know is interested in sponsoring a Minor Detail podcast, please reach out to me at ryan at a minor detail.com. Thanks so much for listening.